This interview was recorded on July 7, 2020. Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this episode of the Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Chris Penner. Based in Saskatoon in the Canadian province of Saskatchewan, Chris is a software developer who is currently working for Vendasta, which helps local businesses get online and build monthly recurring revenue. You can follow him on Twitter at Chris L. Penner and check out his website at chrispenner.ca. Chris is the author of the LeanPub book, Optics by Example, Functional Lenses in Haskell. The book is a one-stop comprehensive guide to mastering optics in functional programming languages and is meant for everyone from complete beginners to those with advanced experience. You can follow the Twitter feed for the book at Optics by Example. In this interview, we're going to talk about Chris's background and career, professional interests, his book, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience as a self-published author. So thank you, Chris, for being on the Front Matter podcast. Thanks for having me, Len. I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in programming. Sure, I'd love to. So um, I actually, I was lucky in the sense that uh, I've had a computer in the home for a very long time. Um, My father actually was uh, part of IT. He kind of uh, helped run the servers for a local uh, college campus. Uh, And so we always had computers at home so that he could uh, kind of work from home from time to time. And, and we just had computers around from a, a very young age. So um, I actually surprisingly didn't take after my father in a lot of in a lot of ways. He didn't really bring his work home with him. So um, he just kind of let me approach them in my own way. But uh, of course, starting with video games and that sort of thing, right? And, and you just kind of develop that uh, familiarity and comfort with them. So when it came to high school, uh, I, of course, was very comfortable online and, you know, did um, all of the online forums and whatever else uh, teens get up to. And so I uh, got pretty pretty into programming from, I think, grade 10 in high school. I was already doing some programming and, you know, I would uh, program some of the answers to my math assignments and science assignments and that sort of thing. So I, I knew about that time, uh, grade 10, grade 11, that programming is what I wanted to do with my career. Uh, I found myself very uh, lucky that I, I knew at such a young age and um, yeah just kind of took it from there and there's there's a couple changes along the way right but um, that's kind of when I knew I wanted to be a programmer. And um, did you study computer science at university? Uh, yes I did actually so I had already uh, I have a little bit of an interesting story there where by the time I started university I already had done a fair amount of programming on the side I'm very much um, self-taught in kind of my origins and I learned a lot uh, at that point and so actually after my first year of university where I had just kind of done some prerequisites and uh, you know the math, art, sciences, English, that sort of thing and I had already picked out where I wanted to work when I was finished university Uh, so I found them at a career fair and I said oh hey you know um, what sort of work do you do? What sort of tools do you use? And I found out actually at the time, this was uh, the company Vendasta that I'm uh, still at now, uh, even though I kind of left and came back a couple times in between. And it was quite interesting because they they told me straight up, they said, oh, we use Python on Google App Engine and um, this is the sort of work that we do. So I said, okay, great. So I went and I spent the summer after my first year of university and I learned their tech stack. I built some uh, little tools and some little uh, toys with that. And I came back the next year and I said, hey, I want to work with you guys. Um, can you get me an interview? I'd love to be a summer student. I know that that's not something that you traditionally have done. Um, they didn't really have a summer student program at the time. But I said, oh, you know, give me an interview. We'll see. Like, I've been 
experimenting and learning and, and trying to get into this. And so they were they were kind enough to give me an interview and uh, hired me on as a summer student. And they've had a summer student program uh, for a couple of years since then. And uh, it, it all worked out. And uh, did you work in Berlin for a while? That's correct. Yeah. So um, that was right before I, I started to work on the book, actually. I, uh, I guess I'll <laughs> go back to kind of my journey into Haskell as well, because uh, it, it plays a key role in, in kind of that transition that I took. So um, Haskell is, uh, for those listening who, who aren't really familiar, I won't get super deep into it, but it, it's kind of more of an esoteric programming language. It's, uh, it's a little bit more rare. Um, you won't see most companies uh, listed as something that they, they work with regularly. Um, and it was something I got into actually during my fourth year of university. I had already been working at Vendasta for a few years at that point, and so I had a little bit of uh, production experience. And so I was honestly getting just a little bit bored with my, my university time. So uh, I decided to take up some Haskell in my spare time and just see, I saw people talking online and saying, you know, this programming language will change the way that you think about programming. And that, you know, for better or worse, sound interesting to me. So I gave it a go. And, uh, and so I spent about that that next year just learning Haskell in my spare time. And I actually ended up building a text editor in Haskell. That was my first project. That was a lot of fun. Uh, eventually, over the years, I kept coming back to it. So, um, you know, I, I would work in Python or, or the Go programming language. And then in my spare time, I would be, you know, hacking on Haskell and very interested in how that works and, you know, interacting with the community. And eventually I decided, you know, this is super fascinating. I have to give this a go. I have to see, you know, what's the day-to-day -day like, what, uh, what it could be like programming this for a day, day job. Uh, so that was when I started kind of looking for opportunities to do that. And as I said, so Haskell is a little bit esoteric. There's not too many companies using it. So I did have to um, search for a little bit and eventually found Wire, which is the company that I worked for in Berlin. It's a very cool company. They do end-to-end -end encrypted chat applications. So they have, uh, they have uh, mobile apps and web apps and desktop apps, and it's all uh, very secure end-to-end -end encrypted. So um, Wire can't read any of your messages, anything like that. So I thought, well, hey, this, uh, this is kind of a, an application that I agree with uh, kind of the principles behind it. And I, I think I'd be interested to work with this team. And it turns out, they're all open source and they use Haskell for everything. This is a, a great opportunity. So I sent them a message and we ended up doing some interviews and flying me out there for a bit and it was a good fit. So I moved out to Berlin and, and wrote some Haskell in Berlin for a little bit and met some awesome people there. Um, a lot of Lean Pub authors are people who've moved around a lot um, mm. or people who aspire to uh, move around a lot. And uh, just want, I'm curious, what was the process like for actually getting to work in, in Germany? Was it, did Wire just take care of everything and their lawyers? Or did you have to, you know, make a special trip to Ottawa or something like that? <laughs> so for me, actually, it was um, pretty easy, I, I would say. Uh, part of that, I, I was very careful to um, make sure I got my, my degree. Uh, so that makes it much easier. If you have a computer science degree, um, many, many countries in Europe, Germany being one of them, will effectively, uh, you, you don't have to prove that the, the job couldn't be taken by a local resident, right? So uh, some visas, you know, they have that requirement. And in this case, um, with computer science, that's 
uh, a much simpler process. So they uh, thankfully also got in touch with a local uh, relocation company. So they booked all of the meetings with the local authorities, with um, you know setting up a visa, all of that. And luckily, actually, um, being Canadian, I I have a you know a temporary visa just kind of built in, right? I can go to Germany for X amount of time, and so we were able to move to Germany and get my permanent visa while I was there on my temporary visa. So it was actually quite easy and, and wire and the relocation company took care of all of that. So that's a really great story. Thanks for sharing that. I went through something similar a couple of times in my life moving moving mm. around and it's always interesting to hear the details. And uh, let me just I can just say having your company's lawyers handle everything <laughs> and having <laughs> their very, team handle very everything nice. is a very different experience from doing it yourself. Um, and so actually one thing that um, I commonly like to ask people uh, on the podcast is, you know, there are many people who got into programming through computer science, studying computer science formally, and there are people who got into programming just kind of self-taught on their own. And I always like to ask them, if they did it one way, do they regret not having done it mm. the other way? And I guess part of your answer is probably going to be, well, it helped me get into Germany, so I'm pretty glad <laughs> I got a computer science degree. But, but I mean, do you, do you ever regret having studied formally at university in computer science for a few years? So I, um, yeah, this is a bit more of a nuanced um, question, which is, is great. So what I would say is that if I were to just, you know, um, get an industry job, I, I wouldn't necessarily say that the university education is the best way to get there. Um, I definitely learned a lot through my university education. They teach you lots of things, but I found that at least at my local university, uh, the, the U of uh, University of Saskatchewan here in Saskatoon, they do tend to lean towards a more academic computer science uh, education, right? Rather than, you know, most of the jobs that I've had are writing apps and building software, right? It's not uh, so much research geared, right? So the, the main reason that I actually did finish my degree was I knew that maybe someday I would want to travel or maybe want to um, get into some more you know, uh, do a master somewhere or travel uh, somewhere and having a degree would be very helpful for that. But at the same time, I would say that the final years of my university, I learned about lots of interesting things. So I was exposed to compilers. Uh, I was first exposed to Haskell at university. I learned all about um, regular languages, classes of uh, parsers and things like that. And, uh, you know, big O complexity and all of these things, which certainly you can learn on your own, but you're not going to be exposed to such a, a large breadth of them all at once if you don't have a reason to go digging into them, right? So I was luckily exposed to all of these things. And Haskell is actually, uh, it, it was invented as a research language and it was invented in universities. And it's a very, it, it's a language which is based on mathematics and academia. And so moving into Haskell, which is um, what has influenced this book and, and kind of my path since then, having the, these formalisms in mind really, really helped me uh, feel more at home as I was learning. It was still difficult, but it, it made it much easier. And did you, this is just my last question about this. Did you, did you, did you study math as well? Because I've seen, um, a, I've watched a couple of your talks on YouTube and like they're very, mm. your explanations are often very kind of like math heavy in a way. Mm. Yeah. So actually uh, this is quite interesting. I didn't have much interest in math in university, um, at least not the, uh, the pure mathematics and, and that sort of thing. I took physics and, and those sorts of things. So I took kind of all of the standard math classes, you know, physics, chemistry, and then the, the introduction to math, so calculus. And, uh, you know, I, I went, did a little bit of linear algebra and those sorts of things. I took um, 
the closest I got to, to the stuff that I, I really ended up finding an interest in was uh, I took an abstract algebra class and I found it, I found it really interesting, but I, at that time I just didn't see any applications for it um, other than getting into mathematics research, right? And it actually took a year from the time that I had taken that class and I had taken some number theory classes too, to start to realize, oh, Haskell is actually a programming language which is based on these ideas from abstract algebra and category theory. And I hadn't seen any of that in any other programming language. So you look at a traditional, you know, Golang or even uh, C or Java, all of those, they're, they have a legacy. They're built on, you know, uh, well, most languages are, are very heavily influenced by C and its successors, right? But they're not based on hundreds of years of mathematic history, right? And so there's a richness there that you can start to realize, oh, we can express patterns, not just mathematic patterns, but actually patterns of computation using this abstract algebra. And so that's where I really, really got hooked into it when I started to see, oh, every business problem you've ever had is, um, you know, it's a math problem with a fresh coat of paint on it. So if you can fill your head with enough um, of these sorts of mathematic formalisms and shapes, and uh, th this is where I was really, really fascinated because it combines the fields of mathematics with programming. And if you think about programmers, what's one thing that we're really, really good at, right? We're good at abstraction. That's what we do all day long. We practice abstraction, you know, we're writing functions, we're using polymorphism, we're implementing classes and interfaces. And um, so when we can combine that abstraction onto these mathematic interfaces, we can start to apply these mathematic interfaces to these business problems. And if you use a, you know, this math concept that's been around for 200 years, you know, it, there's a good chance the kinks are worked out already, right? So uh, if you can just make a tweak here and a tweak there, and now it solves your business problem, then uh, you save a lot of time. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. Um, you reminded me, I've interviewed a few people on the podcast who are Haskellers. Um, mm. And uh, they, uh, there's something, there seems to be something that's kind of thematically similar about their interest, the things they're attracted to in their, in their own thinking. Um, and I, I believe, I hope I don't get this wrong, but it was Julie Moronuki whose path into it was through linguistics. That's correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and um, I, we've also interviewed Sandy McGuire too, who I don't know if we talked about Haskell, but I know he, he helped with your book a little bit. You put him in the acknowledgements if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it's, and it's people, people with like the way, the way I, the way, it's just the way my mm -hmm. mind works is I view it. It's like, it's people with a kind of philosophical interest <laughs> in, in, in what they're doing. Um, mm. seem, seem to be attracted to Haskell. Um, so just before we move on to the next part of the uh, interview where we talk about your book, um, I would like to ask you a little bit about um, the pandemic. So um, mm. one thing I, I always like to say to, on the podcast <laughs> is that one of the great pleasures of it is I get to talk to people from all around the world and ask them about, you know, things that are going on where they're from that might have been in the headlines for the last couple of months. That question has been, you know, how has, how has the pandemic affected you? In this case, um, it's a particular pleasure for me to ask how it's affected things in Saskatoon, because as longtime listeners of the podcast might know, uh, I'm from Saskatchewan and I actually am from Saskatoon. Um, I took intro to calculus at the University of Saskatchewan myself many, many moons ago. Um, and so, yeah, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about um, how the pandemic has affected uh, you and, and how it affected uh, the city of Saskatoon. Sure. 
Um, yeah, I was very surprised to hear that you're, you've been around uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, because, uh, you know, most people, I, I mention that when I'm overseas in Berlin, and, you know, I say, oh, where are you from? Uh, Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, and they, they just think it's a joke, you know, you can't say that 10 times fast, but um, <laughs> luckily you can pronounce it correctly, so that's wonderful. Uh, yeah, the, the response in this area, um, I... You know, Saskatchewan is, is unique in that we have quite a low population density. And so I, I think, I, you know, I'm not a, a scientist who studied this, so I take, of course, my word with a grain of salt. But uh, I think that that's allowed us to um, perhaps have uh, a little bit uh, less of a drastic uh, need for a, an incredible response here. But uh, I'm quite happy with how things have gone. Um, you know, we, we did have a very strong, okay, everybody needs to stay in their homes and self-isolate right off the, the very beginning. And it uh, seems to have had the desired effect, so far as I can tell. So after a couple months of, of working from home, uh, I'm actually still working from home, and I'm, I'm very thankful that my, my job in Fendasta, I can, I can work from home here. I'm actually uh, just a couple blocks from the office, so <laughs> it wouldn't be a huge deal if I needed to go back in. But um, that, that's been very, very nice. Uh, but I would say overall, uh, I think we currently have somewhere around the, the area of, of six known active cases in Saskatoon uh, out of 270 some thousand people. So uh, as far as those numbers go, I'm, I'm pretty optimistic about how we're doing. Well, that's great to hear. Thanks for sharing that. Um, it's funny for me to hear that number. That means Saskatoon is like twice as big as it was when I, <laughs> when I lived there. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Thanks very much uh, for sharing that. Um, uh, so yeah, just moving on to uh, the next part of the interview, uh, where we're going to talk about your book, Optics by Example. Um, I'm going to I'm going to hit you with the question I ask everyone who who uh, before we talk about optics, I'm going to ask you the Haskell question I ask everybody, which is sure. what's, a, what's a monad? What's a monad, right? I'm not sure you've got a monad is uh, uh, like a burrito, right? A cat in a burrito. Uh, <laughs> <or something? laughs> the, one of, one of the answers to that, I won't spend too much time on this. I know we have other things to yeah. get to. And, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but it is, uh, the, the analogy that I really, really like is the idea that it's a programmable semicolon. I'm not sure if you've gotten that one before. No. No? So um, when you think about monads, they were actually originally invented in Haskell in order to express the idea of uh, sequencing. So do this thing and then do this other thing. Because in traditional mathematics, that's, uh, not really possible. Everything is just expressed as these rules and everything happens at once, right? And there's no um, state of the world in mathematics, right? So you don't need to worry about that. But when you're programming, it really does matter whether you write to disk first or read to disk first, right? We need to sequence those in the right order. And so uh, monads were invented to, um, at, at the base level, allow us to say, okay, this thing happens and then this thing happens. But they're an abstraction. So I've talked a lot about mathematic abstractions. And so monads, right, they're, they're more of an interface and you can have multiple different types of monads. And some of them deal with sequencing, but others of them um, do other things, but they all tie these ideas of these expressions or these statements together. And so you can actually write very, very interesting monads, which uh, affect how your program is glued together and your program can accomplish many different things without needing to, um, you, you know, you can change the program's behavior after the fact without needing to affect your syntax. Uh, and it, it's been very, very interesting to see all of the uh, domain-specific languages and DSLs that come out of this idea and how powerful it can really be. 
Thanks for that. A programmable semicolon. That's a that's a great image. That one. I've, I've got a background in English, so that one's going to stick with me maybe more, <laughs> more than some other, more than some others. Uh, so moving on to the next part of the interview, and finally talking about your book, Optics by Example. Um, what led you to write the book? Yeah. So you'd mentioned actually um, Sandy McGuire a little bit uh, earlier. I, I think you had him on to talk about his book, um, Thinking with Types, and uh, so. I actually, I originally met Sandy back in a Slack channel, a, uh, a Haskell programming, uh, a functional programming Slack channel. And uh, we, we were chatting in there for, for a good couple of months. And uh, at, at some point um, after he had released his book, we were, we were chatting and he just, you know, mentioned some things about the book and I was a little bit curious about it. So I prodded him about it and, and he was very open and forthcoming. He's like, oh yeah, like this is how it's going. This is how it's been. This is what it was like to write a book. And um, he, he posts a lot about kind of how he lives his life online. He's got a, a blog about some of the experiments he's taken and some of the things that he's tried. And part of it was just that his lifestyle was appealing. So the idea that he didn't work a day job and that he could write on his own time and just kind of, you know, uh, if he feels like writing today, he would write today. And if not, he can go for a walk in the park. And that's really a, a cool idea for for that sort of thing. So he kind of showed me that this was an attainable uh, thing to do and that, you know, someone with, um, it, you know, I, I think of, of himself and I, right? We, we don't have master's degrees. We don't have PhDs, right? We're just kind of people who got excited about a thing and then um, thought about it a lot and <laughs> then wrote a book. And so he showed me that that's possible. And so what ended up happening actually was after I, uh, had been in Berlin for a little while and I decided to um, leave, leave the company there and come back to Saskatoon for a bit. Uh, right before I was leaving, I did a talk at a uh, conference there called um, Monadic Party. So this is a, it's kind of like a week-long Haskell summer school. It's an extended conference. Uh, they have lots of speakers come in and and so I did a, a talk there on a mathematic um, attraction called Comonads and I got to meet a lot of really cool people there and just chat about Haskell for about a week straight. And I realized something that um, I, I love optics and what they, uh, we'll get to that soon, I'm sure, but, and what they can accomplish and what they can do and how expressive they are. And so I was talking with all sorts of people about it. And I realized that this is kind of a hard thing for people to get into, but it really does pay off. And I, had several people encourage me and say, hey, Chris, like, I enjoyed your workshop. You're, you're a good teacher. Like, um, why don't you teach this? Why don't you teach optics, right? And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe that is something I could do. So when I ended up leaving that conference, I, I thought to myself, and you know, things have been stewing around in there enough. It's like, oh, a book is viable, and maybe I'm the one to write it. And uh, I was lucky enough that, well, <laughs> or maybe, um, uh, it, it was quite interesting that there wasn't a book on optics yet. I was quite surprised by that. There wasn't a focused set of knowledge that explains this concept and how it works and uh, in great detail. So I decided, you know what, maybe I can be the one to do it. Yeah, that's, that's, uh, and the book I, I should say has, um, has sold very well, uh, which was interesting to see. And um, yeah, that's, it's, it's in interesting. We'll talk about being, being like writing books and being a self-published author in the last part of the interview, mm -hmm. but if you there's something that you know that no one's written about, go go fill the void. That's right. <laughs> go fill the void. Uh, you can do it. Uh, it'll take a while to write a good book. is is a big commitment and a lot of hard work. And you'll want to bring other people in if they're willing to help you. Uh, but 
Uh, if there's something that you know about that no one's written about, I guarantee you there are people out there who want who want to read a book by you about that. About that. Um, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I guess next week, the natural thing to come to, we should talk about next is um, what are optics and what's the history of the topic and yeah, how do you specifically become interested in that? Yeah, so what are optics, I guess? Um, when you hear the term, maybe you think of, you know, glasses or maybe a magnifying glass, something like that. And, uh, you know, the, the programming discipline of optics, they, they kind of uh, make analogy to that. So uh, lenses, which are one type of optic, they, they help you focus on a specific uh, smaller piece of a larger object. So kind of like a magnifying glass, right? And so um, let's, let's talk about what they actually can help you accomplish. So if I were to maybe use analogy to something, uh, I, I would start by talking about maybe Java setters and getters. So uh, typically you'd have a getter and a setter for each property in a Java object. And um, that's really nice. It, it abstracts away the idea of dealing with maybe direct memory access. And that's nice because uh, you don't need to really care about where in the Java class that uh, property actually lives. And so optics kind of follow along the same principle and um, take it to a different conclusion. So optics, rather than being just individual functions existing on a class, they're actually a value. So you might have an optic like a lens, which is one particular type of op optic, and that lens represents the reference to uh, some smaller value inside some larger object. So for instance, maybe a property of a class or a record, and it knows how to get and set, but it's just a value. You can pass it around, you can you know, give it to other functions, uh, and that gives you some really interesting side effects. So now that we can kind of move this around and do whatever we want with it, uh, we can actually use it to start uh, abstracting over some other things. So something that's really helpful here is that we can use this reference and build functions that operate on data even though they don't know where it lives. They don't really care where it lives. Um, and that lets us separate our concerns of what we want to do from where we want to do it or which data we want to perform it on. So if we kind of follow that um, through on its logical conclusion, we start to realize, oh, like we can actually abstract um, all sorts of different types of references too. So what other types of references are, are there? What other things can we think about? Well, rather than just selecting a single property, what if we were to select multiple properties across the object that all have you know, the same type? Or maybe we um, select every element of an array at the same time and then you know, perform that operation over all of them. And the nice thing is, is that you know, we can write uh, our mutation or, or update function and it doesn't need to know um, you know, where in the object it's performing. And that means it's much more reusable because we can pass in a different reference each time, but reuse the function, or we can change the function, but reuse the reference, right? And we're just not um, getting those things all convoluted with each other. So then kind of where else can we take this idea? Uh, so we, we've got this idea of abstracting over references. Well, there are all sorts of patterns we can actually bake into the reference itself so that the behavior doesn't need to worry about it. So uh, one probably uh, relatable idea is, you know, in C, for instance, you might have a reference, in that case, a pointer, which might be null. Oh, uh-oh. If you try and like get or, or set 
a null pointer, right? You're gonna have a bad time. So in optics, we can actually bake in this idea of like, oh, we can handle that null and there's different ways of doing it. So we can maybe replace the, the value there with some default, or maybe we can say, well, if you're trying to run an, an update over something that's not there, we just won't do it at all. Um, but we, we won't crash, so that's a benefit. So you can um, then start to add these strategies, right? And you can even uh, come up with any strategy you want. You can, you can put filters into your getters so that you can say, well, okay, I want to focus on this thing, but only if it has this property. Uh, and so we start to build up this really cool and complex language of combinators. Uh, and uh, they, they get really quite powerful and they're quite terse. Uh, and they all just kind of link together like Lego pieces, right? And one really interesting thing is that uh, the, the way optics are designed in Haskell specifically is that they're all interoperable with each other. They compose... Um, with each other no matter kind of you know which library they're from so long as you build them correctly so i can write a library and you can write a library and they'll both kind of click and work with each other uh and so the the ecosystem is quite open in that way which is great so you also mentioned the the history and kind of where they came from uh and the history of optics is quite interesting they're they're actually not that old uh they were invented in around 2012 uh and they were designed um <laughs> out of kind of frustration where someone was trying to do games programming in Haskell and they were hitting some performance uh, problems because in order to edit, um, you know, a, a property on a deeply nested object that they had in their game, well, they had to kind of unpack this object all the way and find the property and edit it and then repack this object back together because in Haskell, uh, most of the data structures are immutable. You can't just edit uh, something in place, right? And so this is just kind of the way Haskell is, but at the same time, they, they were getting frustrated and they thought, well, okay, can I, can I make this more performant? And they ended up designing lenses uh, just to help with this performance problem, and it ended up um, helping a lot, and modern lenses are actually still extremely performant. Uh, but then it kind of forked off into this really, really interesting study, this kind of, oh, like, this is this is fascinating, these things compose and, and you can abstract over them. And uh, people kind of took it from there. And then it spiraled off into this whole other thing where people got interested in the mathematics side of it and started writing papers and finding uh, analogies in category theory and how it relates there. And actually, so um, people have been studying, uh, some people studied its applications to databases. Uh, there's, I think, a paper on applying this to database views. Um, and so it's been really interesting to see how, you know, the math community plays with it for a little bit and they come up with some new ideas and then the, you know, more practical, I suppose, programmers uh, start to use these ideas that the researchers came up with and then they develop some new things and then the researchers take that and it has this really cool back and forth feedback loop and there are still new optics being discovered uh, all the time. So there was a, a whole new paper that, that, discovered a whole new set of optics uh, this year that was released. So uh, it's definitely uh, not a dead discipline yet. There, there's a lot of learning going on. And uh, um, yeah, it's really exciting to see where it's going to go. Yeah, thanks very much for sharing that. You're setting off a lot of ideas in, in my head when you're explaining that. But I think one of the most important takeaways is for people to understand, and you explained this very well at the beginning of your book, I think, or in the, maybe it's even in the book description, that although you chose Haskell uh, as the language to 
you know, use in the book, the concept mm -hmm. of optics is not unique to Haskell. Right. Yeah, it's a math. It's now at, at this point even transcended programming into mathematics, and there's all sorts of applications for it. But there, there are now optics implementations in uh, you know Haskell, in Scala, in JavaScript. I think there's even one in Python, and uh, they they all have kind of varying levels of um, you know effectiveness or brevity. But uh, it's definitely a concept that's starting to take off because I, I think it's very elegant. <laughs> Speaking of elegant, uh, you've written an elegant book. Um, uh, so this might be a good opportunity to move on to the last part of the interview where we talk about your, your practice as an, as an author. Um, I guess my first question would be, uh, why did you decide to use LeanPub as the platform to write and publish the book? Sure. Um, in short, <laughs> I would say I probably <laughs> used LeanPub because Sandy used LeanPub, um, which is great. Some word of mouth um, stuff there. And, and he had really good things to say about it. Uh, and uh, I, I did actually end up using it in a slightly different way. I think Sandy ended up building his own kind of uh, workflow to to publish the book through LeanPub. But I, I was really interested in the the Markdown sort of uh, workflow. So uh, for those listeners who don't know, you can really quite easily hook up your your GitHub account and set up a, a repo there. And so I would just write in Markdown. That's what I'm used to as a programmer. I open up Vim and I just kind of crunch away on Markdown. And um, you know, you can make commits and push them up and then LeanPub can just build the book from there. And so the idea that I could write in this very simple format that I understand, I can have all of my code there. I'm not trying to write code in, you know, a Word document or something silly like that. Um, and that it can build for PDF and EPUB and all of these different things. Cause I know Sandy had a little bit of trouble getting, you know, he had to write his own tooling to get these sorts of, uh, mobile books and those sorts of things, right? So, so the fact that I could do it um, without any work for myself was very appealing. And you didn't publish it in progress, is that correct? You just published it all at once with a big launch? Uh, yeah, that, that's in part correct. Actually, okay. I did, um, uh, I started off with a Patreon campaign. So I, I had a Patreon page and uh, that was also very, that was actually, I would say, a key part of my publishing experience because what it allowed me to do was I could get people on board early um, who were invested enough in the book to pay a monthly fee in order to access the, the previews as, as I'm working, right? So the chapters as they come out. Um, so I knew that they were invested in the idea. I could, I could validate that people were interested in the book. And I had that audience to um, offer feedback. How is this going? Is this sensible? Does this structure make sense? And they were invested, right? They, they, I wasn't talking to a wall. They had already um, invested some money in this. And then over time, that developed and developed. And I, I kept it on Patreon until the book was actually finished. And then I was able to easily move it into LeanPub. I was very thankful for um, kind of the, the simplicity of LeanPub's uh, coupon system, actually. So I was able to uh, move it over to LeanPub. And I said, OK, well, anyone who supported me on Patreon, gets a free copy of the book they've already paid for it through Patreon. And so I just gave them all a LeanPub coupon for it. And then I didn't have to keep sending out the books on Patreon. I could kind of um, cap that off and say, okay, everything's on LeanPub now. And uh, all of the future purchases go through there. I really love that story, partly because um, the it sort of maps onto a bit the origin story of LeanPub itself, where my colleague Peter um, wrote a book and he was publishing it. 
he he did he published it on a service that didn't technically have like an in progress thing, but you mm. could update you could update your PDF easily basically. <laughs> okay. And so he published it when it was unfinished, and then he gave people a little password Rumpelstiltskin so that they could yeah. get onto like I think it was I, I'm probably getting it wrong, but like some kind of message board somewhere. Mm. And so <laughs> what happened was he was doing in a way a similar thing, like giving people who paid already for the book access to a special place where they could get updates. And he actually got a lot of what he started getting was feedback from people like, why don't you write about this? Or there's a typo there and stuff like that. Did you get feedback from people while you were from your Patreon supporters? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, I got a lot of uh, typos in that sorts of thing. Uh, I actually put a, a link to a Google form in the, in the very front of my book so that I wasn't getting emails and DMs and all over the place, right? It kind of centralized it and it uh, actually put it in a spreadsheet so I could very quickly, uh, you know, I had fields for, oh, which page is the typo on and it made it much, much faster to, to fix up. Um, but as far as uh, more constructive feedback, I, I did actually need to go out and, and kind of pester a few people. Luckily, I, I had um, uh, one, one person who was, very amenable and open to that and they were very interested in the subject matter so I kind of latched onto them from that point on and just kept uh, sending them every new chapter and said oh what do you think of this and, and how's that going so that was very helpful. That's really fantastic and uh, and so you, you also set up and this is this is this part this is we leave this part of the interview for the end for people who are interested in learning the nuts and bolts and people's experience of publishing but so you set up a Twitter account for the book. Mm -hmm. um, I did yeah. And have you been getting people on there? Uh, I've gotten a few. Um, I I made the uh, the Twitter account for the book. I wasn't exactly sure what its purpose was going to be at the beginning, but I figure you know more press is good press, right? So I I made that it, even if it just means that people will see every tweet I tweet twice, then I guess maybe that might get it in the front of their mind a little bit more. Uh, so I did make the the Twitter account for the book. Whether it was uh, I, I would probably do it again. Whether it was super effective, I, I'm not really sure. I have much more followers on my main account, so I still end up tweeting pretty much everything about the book on my main account. Um, but it, it was an interesting experiment, and uh, I, I wouldn't say it hurt anything, that's for sure. Um, the last question I always like to ask on the podcast is, if you could ask us to build one feature for you or fix one problem for you uh, on LeanPub, what would you ask us to do for you? Oh, good question. Uh, for myself, I think I would be really interested in, um, so I've gotten a lot of, this is a textbook, I've gotten a lot of requests since I put this out actually for a physical copy. So a lot of people really enjoy having the physical textbook on their desk in front of them and flipping through and, uh, you know, it's got some nice cover art and that way they can lean it up against the computer while they're working on it, right? And so I really, really appreciated the, uh, the export to a print-ready PDF feature that, that LeanPub has. So even though LeanPub won't, won't print it for me, they, they made it extremely easy to send it to a PDF and then uh, and ship it off to a distributor. Um, so one thing I would really actually like is settings to export to different uh, form factors. So uh, so far as I know, LeanPub currently only really supports the uh, kind of eight and a half by 11. Is that actually correct? Or do they have oh, other? No, we have, we have lots of different pages. You have sizes. lots. Oh, okay. Yeah. I need to yeah. digging in there. I think I got set in my ways. Well, that's great. Okay. So you've already, uh, already done the feature that I want <laughs> is the ability to, to look at more form factors. I really well, appreciate well, that. Feature. Obviously we need to uh, improve the visibility of that. Yeah. So we have, we've built a feature <laughs> over the years called the print ready PDF export, which lets people um, export a PDF so that it can be uploaded to print on demand services and things like that. Mm -hmm. So people can get print copies of their books. 
Um, and yeah, like one actually one of the most important elements of it is giving people that because the service that you're using will say you can only upload, you know, n page sizes and they'll specify them for you. And so we try to provide mm -hmm. those page sizes for people, and it's it's a really important thing. So we do do our best. And if you ever if you can't find it, please reach out to us. And if you can, and the page size that you need isn't there, uh, please reach out to us at hello at leanpub.com and we'll, we'll do that. Um, well, thank you very much, Chris, for taking the time uh, out of a beautiful Saskatchewan summer evening, I imagine, to, uh, to be on this uh, podcast. And thanks for being a Lean Pub author. Yeah, thanks so much, Len. Appreciate it. Have a great day. Thanks. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it. And if you'd like to be a Lean Pub author yourself, please check out our website at leanpub.com. Thanks.